Futurists are looking at the 21st century. And all myths that are uh, authentic maintain a kind of dreamlike, surreal quality. Computers are taking over now. By the year 2001, man will travel about in pneumatic people tubes. It's time once again to step into the future. I had, if you ever was a devil, bought that any harness, better burn your man. I hear you, mama. Hey, hey. In the kitchen of Meadow Cottage, by the green glow of their own box of lights, Ken Webster, Peter Trinder, and Debbie reread the message that had come from the mysterious entity they knew only as 2109. Ken, Deb, Peter, we are sorry that we can give you only two choices. One, that you either have your predicament explained in such a non-rhyme way that you may have instant understanding but cause what should not be to happen, or two, try to understand that you three have a purpose that shall in your lifetimes change the face of history. We, 2109, must not affect your thoughts directly, but give you some sort of guidance that will allow room for your own destiny. All we can say is that we are all part of the same God, whatever he, it, parentheses, question mark, is. For God's sake, Ken said, they can't even spell properly. This has to be a hoax. But how? Deb said. We've been trying to find any way this might have been pulled off and have come up empty. Even the Society for Psychical Research hasn't debunked it yet. I don't know what this is, Ken, but there's something to it. It has to be more than a hoax. They read the message over again. It was similar to the very first message they'd found on the BBC Micro, the one they had called the poem. It was addressed to three people, and it spoke of destiny, a concept which Ken, staunch skeptic that he was, roundly rejected. Now that they both understood that the first message, like this one, hadn't come from Lucas, the whole thing took on an even creepier feel. Ken wanted to delete the message entirely, get rid of it, go back to the haunting he knew and, at least, partially understood. After all, Lucas was still in need of their help, and that was all Ken wanted to focus on. This is Future Saint of a New Era. I'm Libby Grant. Lucas did respond later that night. My goodly friend, here is my verse, but I think you will make no sense of this thing. I wrote it for a record. Take what is truly yours. It be to your confusion before it affects a man who may be in trouble. Many a year gone since your day, this device is not incitement to evil, but the opposite of that, an angel of good fortune for those who shine, whatever be your motive. Questions about important matters from the three that shine who, nonetheless you have seen, will cause the box of lights to be no more. Such conduct shall be your correction, for an easy death is near for a friend of a wise man who chooses. 
The foul man must see the king to tell him of the cat that frightened a mouse and cure your sickness. Each of you men that have understanding, I do not doubt that your prayers shall be answered, so that you may teach wisdom unto the foolish. Be wary, my friend, of your lust. The pudding may burn. I will write tomorrow. I am none too well. Lucas, your loving friend. Whoever had given that verse to Lucas, he'd said that the verse itself was all the help he could offer, and that it contained a clue that would save his life. By that time, it was nearly midnight, but they all agreed. They had to keep working to save Lucas's life, had to continue doing whatever they could for more than 400 years in the future. Peter tackled the verse in greater depth, trying to tease more meaning from it. There were similarities to the initial message Ken and Deb had received, references to cats going to the king. Who could get to the king in Lucas's time to intercede on Lucas's behalf? The only person any of them could think of was Thomas Fowlshurst, the foul man of the verse, perhaps, the sheriff who'd been after Lucas for his taxes. He didn't seem like much of an ally. Then Peter recalled that Lucas had once referenced Bishop Mann, the Dean of Oxford whom Lucas had once known, the one he described as likened to a fish. Peter had previously done some research into the name, trying to verify Lucas's historical details, and he did know something of use about Bishop Mann. The bishop had once been in touch with the Maid of Kent, a woman whom King Henry VIII considered to be an enemy of the crown and to Henry's new church. She'd been executed, in fact, for treason after prophesying the king's death. We can tell Thomas Fowlhurst that Bishop Mann had dealings with the Maid of Kent, Peter said. That's information he can take to the king and it might bring a reward. Put Fowlhurst on our side. You're saying, Ken said, we might be able to bribe the sheriff to set Lucas free. Peter admitted it was a gamble, but it was the only leverage they had over the sheriff, the only way they might help their friend. The next morning, they sent a message to Lucas, informing him of how the scheme might work. He was to inform Sheriff Falshurst that Bishop Mann had once written to Dr. Bocking, who'd been the confessor of the Maid of Kent, and had asked that the Maid of Kent might remember Mann in her prayers, and obtain for him Christ's grace. Definitely not the kind of thing Henry VIII would have been happy to hear. The hope was that Fowlshurst would be paid a handsome sum for the information and thus would see Lucas and his box of lights as too valuable a source of information to put him to death. They were grasping at straws and they all knew it, but Lucas agreed to try it, especially because he understood that, due to certain political problems of his own time, Mann was unlikely to be executed for his crime of allying himself with the Maid of Kent. Rather, he'd be exiled for a while and then would be allowed to return to Oxford. One day passed, then another. By that time, it was the end of April. Ken, Deb, and Peter had done all they could think to do for Lucas. There was nothing left but the waiting. Unable to stay in the cottage among all the tension, Ken drove out into the Welsh countryside. He watched the clouds moving over the vast green hills, over the towns of Hope and World's End, and he knew he was waiting to hear about the end of Lucas's world. He realized, in that moment, that improbable as all this was, He'd come to think of Lucas as his friend. And if Lucas was sentenced to death, Ken would feel somehow responsible. When he returned to the cottage, there was a reply from Lucas, but it wasn't what Ken or Deb had hoped to hear. My true friend, Ken. No, I haven't spoken with the sheriff. 
Tomorrow I go before the court. I can't escape being condemned. They won't listen to my story of Bishop Mann. Only the sheriff could help, but he is powerless when I am in the court. I am so weak that I don't find it easy to think clearly. I can hear Catherine crying for me. It pains me so. She's only fourteen, too young to be by herself without a man to guide her. I hope that she isn't taken as a witch like me, but this would be typical of this prejudiced government. I have thought for days and nights without sleep on what there was in these verses of ours that could save me, but I cannot remember all of your verse and I am not allowed any writing materials. I beg you to think with me, for time is running out. If you can't speak with me again, then I must also beg you to write my book and place this in it. To all people concerning good friends, Ken, Peter, and Debbie. Although I am long dead in your time, I would like you to believe that my friends are not furies or devils, but great men and a good woman who write this book not for themselves, but for your better understanding. Although many foolish people will turn away from this unknown thing, those that can learn will find great knowledge if you do not turn away from what is true. The people of my time cannot learn, for we are thrown in prison for thinking and reasoning on what is not explained, so we learn only what the crown will teach and not what there is to be learned. I am a man of God's book, but I will die for this very reason. I pray you understand me, for life is too short to go to God with nothing learnt. Farewell, my good, honest friends. May your God receive you, and long live Oxford. Lucas Ken was beside himself. He began to cry for his friend, trapped by time so far from whatever feeble help any of them in 1985 could provide. Deb did her best to comfort him, but the feeling only grew worse the next evening, when a message arrived in Latin. The translation was, Not to go forwards is to go back to the mountain of death. God be with you, Lucas. They took this to be Lucas's last words. Isn't there anything more we could have done for him? Deb asked, stricken. Ken had no answer. He went out into the back garden where he could be alone with the sky. After Deb gave the sad news to Peter Trinder, he came by for a visit with his wife Val, who, it must be said, didn't believe in any of this as wholeheartedly as her husband did, but she joined in as Peter opened the bottle of wine he'd brought and they all raised a glass to Lucas. Slowly, conversation turned towards the SPR. What would the skeptics make of this twist? Lucas's death, if indeed that was what they were facing, had come at an awfully convenient time. On the 1st of May, while cleaning the kitchen, Deb found a little line of chalk dust at the base of the brick pillar, as if some message had been erased and white grains left to fall. On the kitchen table beside the pillar, the picture of Erasmus was back, the one Ken had left for Lucas. Its edges were charred by heat, like the picture of the jaguar. Deb took these manifestations as sure signs that Lucas was gone. Ken and Deb did their best to move on. They resumed work on the cottage, and Ken threw himself into teaching. Ken often went out walking, sometimes all the way to Penerlag Estate, the beautiful old property now owned by his friends Dave and Cian Lovell. Dave was a contractor and often did some of the work on Ken's house. On the 5th of May, Cian came running down from that old house when she saw Ken at the edge of her property. Get back to Meadow Cottage, Cian said, breathless. Dave just rang. He found some chalk marks on your floor. He can't read them. It said it looks like it's written in another language. Ken's heart leaped. It was the poltergeist activity again. Maybe even Lucas. All right if I use your phone, he asked. 
He called Peter Trinder and asked to meet him at Meadow Cottage. Peter agreed. A couple hours later, Ken, Deb, and Peter were gathered over the chalk marks scrawled across the kitchen floor. The message was written in Latin in a strange, cursive-like script and was addressed to Peter. With some difficulty due to the odd handwriting, Peter translated it. It read, You ask too much. Furthermore, Lucas went to his death and brought death upon himself. The God's will, and the last word was indistinct, crammed as it was underneath the table. John, Deb guessed, Lucas's friend from Stockport? Just how many fellows from the 16th century can interpenetrate our world, Peter wondered. We've got to get the computer back, Deb said. Can you get it tomorrow, Ken? I'll try. Even if Lucas is gone, this phenomenon obviously isn't. SPR might be able to make something of this. Another micro was set up in the kitchen. The moment Ken called up a new file on the Edward program, he found a single word on the screen. Eradicent. For a long time, he and Deb puzzled over it, until finally Ken realized it was the missing word from the chalk inscription, the one Peter hadn't been able to translate. He called Peter to give him the news, and now the ending of the chalk message made more sense. It was a kind of curse. It read, The gods will root you out. Another death threat from the past, Ken said. This is getting old. He decided to try the future instead. He typed out a message to 2109, asking who'd written in chalk on his floor and whether he ought to be worried about whoever or whatever was manipulating physical objects in his own time. But there was no answer for a few days until finally 2109 replied, Your questions will be answered. Oh, will they, Ken thought. He immediately sent more questions. Might as well get as many answers as he could. He asked whether these communications would continue and asserted, perhaps more to comfort himself than for any other reason, that a poltergeist couldn't harm the living. He demanded more information about Lucas too, what had happened to him and who exactly was this man. But the next day, the only reply was, Not enough power. Explain. Ken typed into the micro. How can we help? Name the power source, please. The answer came 24 hours later. Go to sleep. Ken and Deb tried taking a nap together, but when they woke up, they found another terse message. Alone. Who? Ken typed. Me or her? An hour later, he checked the micro. There was no message in reply, but whoever he was communicating with had deleted all the words, so only her remained. It was clear then. Deb's dreams were somehow a source of energy on which this phenomenon could feed. Deb lay down on the couch and did her best to sleep while Ken left the cottage. When he returned, they found a message addressed to Peter and once more written in Latin. You are devoting nights and days to your investigations. This is what he wishes for himself. That trick of yours does not deceive me. A strange obscurity, but when Ken arrowed down the page, he found another message below the first. First, what help do you require? If you wish to know Lucas Wainman's true name, we can say no more than the man named Peter has it, page 26. The person whom you refer to as John is not to be trusted. Also, there is nothing to fear outside man, true, but you are not fully capable of knowing just what man really is. Without knowledge, you have fear. With fear, you create your own nightmares. Ken responded at once. 2109. 
There are many disturbances. Can you indicate the source? We must know a little more of Lucas. Which village or town did he come from precisely? Did he go to Trial in Chester or Nantwich? Thank you for the riddles. They are so hard. King? Mouse? A little more help, please. Ken. 2109 didn't respond, but an unsigned message came, which they took to be from John, Lucas's friend, whom they suspected of writing in chalk on their floor. My friend, thou must give the computer and the power to myself, or else you wilt have none of my words about thy friend Lucas. So now they were communicating with 2109 and John. Great. While Ken and Deb stewed in the frustration of their unanswered questions, Peter received a long letter detailing the research one Robin Peedle had done on his behalf. Peedle was a librarian at Bracenose College, and after reviewing all the information Peter had sent him, he'd identified a man named Thomas Howarden as the most likely candidate for Lucas's true identity. All three of the querents thought this was unlikely. Howarden, like the school Ken taught at, like the town where Peter lived, they thought the librarian had probably succumbed to simple word association rather than hitting on likely facts. But Pedell had also reviewed the list of books Peter had given him, the texts Lucas had identified as his favorites while he'd been at Oxford. The librarian confirmed that all of them were contemporary with the 1520s and 1530s. Unlikely that a hoaxer would have hit upon such obscure details as mid-16th century textbooks, unless the hoaxer came from Bracenose College itself. On the 14th of May, John Bucknell from the Society of Psychical Research called. He was the field researcher whom the organization had promised would come by. Ken instantly felt a good rapport with Bucknell. The man seemed honest and curious and willing to hear the story without judgment. Ken finally felt assured that he, Deb, and Peter would soon have their sanity confirmed. Even if this is some hoax, Bucknell said, it's an incredibly intricate one. The sophistication alone of such a hoax deserves investigation. The society's most definitely interested in a full investigation. While Bucknell organized affairs on his end, a message came through from 2109. It appeared to be a belated reply to Ken's query for more information about Lucas. Lucas W.'s father served on the King's Rose, Bristol. A favor from the King brought wealth. Tell the King about the mouse. Another reference to telling the King about mice and cats. Ken wondered, was 2109 trying to influence the course of history by spreading awareness of how to stop the Black Death? Was that the purpose of this future experiment? The initial meeting with SPR took place at Peter Trinder's home in Howarden. John Bucknell, the young researcher whom Ken had liked so well, was joined by Dave Welch, a big, bearded investigator with the SPR. Both representatives of the society had a serious, business-like air as they gathered information and delineated a plan for how the investigation should proceed. The more Bucknell and Welch talked about investigations and phenomena in general, the more clear it became to Ken, Deb, and Peter that they were the prime suspects. In fact, all three of them would be carefully monitored and even physically prevented from interacting with the computer while the investigations were ongoing. None of them liked being suspected of the hoax, but since all of them wanted answers, and the SPR's scientific approach seemed the best way to get those answers, they all agreed to the conditions. They drove the researchers down to Meadow Cottage and showed them around the place, pointing out the difficulty an intruder would have in accessing the cottage without being noticed. Ken showed them the BBC micro on the kitchen table and addressed a message to 2109. Any more riddles? 
While checking the layout of the house, Welch decided a hoaxer could easily access the cottage through the attic space which connected to the other three townhouse-style homes. Welch was certain he'd cracked the case. Politely, Ken and Deb said nothing, but they knew such a thing was impossible. For one thing, they'd hear anyone crawling around in their attic space and opening the attic hatch. For another, such an intruder would have to come down the stairs into the very small living room before entering the kitchen, and the messages had often appeared while Ken or Deb, or both of them, had been in the living room. The suggestion was obviously absurd, and no solution to this mystery. The day after the SPR's initial investigation, the poltergeist activity returned with a vengeance. Deb had been spending most of her time at the little apartment she'd rented in town just to have a normal home again. On the 15th of May, she dropped by Meadow Cottage to feed the cats. As she approached the front door, both cats were crouched, quiet and nervous, on the wall, rather than circling her feet and yowling as they usually did at feeding time. When she opened the door, an astonishing and terrifying sight greeted her. Every stick of furniture in the living room, couch, easy chair, tables, even Ken's bicycle, had been stacked against the kitchen door. It looked like a giant had flicked the living room with a finger and sent everything flying. Deb closed the front door. She circled the block, entered the back garden, and peeked in through the kitchen window. The same state of affairs greeted her there. The kitchen was a wreck. Furniture and appliances upended and stacked near the brick pillar, contents of the cupboard spilled everywhere. In a daze, she entered the front door again and wondered how in hell she was going to put this mess to rights. At that convenient moment, there was a knock. It was the glaziers Ken had hired to replace the windows. They wanted to take some quick measurements, but there was no way Deb could explain this mess and no way they could do their work with heaps of furniture and appliances to climb over. She had a difficult time convincing them to come back later, but they finally agreed. Ken and Deb enlisted the help of their friend Dave Lovell to put the cottage back in order. While the men were working, Deb spoke to the next-door neighbor, who hadn't noticed anyone enter the cottage and had heard no disturbances through the shared wall. Nevertheless, Dave Lovell felt sure it must have been kids pulling a prank on their teacher, maybe as revenge for bad grades. Ken had to admire his friend's certainty that there is a rational explanation. Such a simple view of the world made everything a lot easier. Two days after the poltergeist attack, 2109 offered some advice. Ken, Deb, Peter. Again we give you two choices, together with some help. What is our name? Too perfect that we make mistakes, as we must have a character. Movement that casts no shadows. Thought without chemical reaction. Love without passion. Hate without anger. Wars without life lost. How can we have a name? We are many, but no more than one, in the time to come. We have no retirement, ah, what an age to be if the digits were reversed. Marriage. 1. Do you wish to know of Lucas and what of him? Cause the computer to have been never in his time? Thus he shall fall to no unnatural death. He would have no knowledge of you in your time to come. You shall have no proof. 2. Do you continue with the computer and risk the sight of your destiny as Lucas? But, ah, but something will be proved. 
You three must sit undisturbed and talk and listen, most importantly. The answer will come to you all, not from an individual. This message perplexed them, and perhaps in 1985 it was difficult to imagine how something could be many, but not more than one, and how such an entity could encompass such a multitude of paradoxes. The people of the 21st century already have a name for such a being, although it hasn't yet arrived. Or perhaps more accurately, we haven't yet acknowledged its presence in our society and in ourselves. We call this entity the Singularity. And how, if Ken, Deb, and Peter knew Lucas's true identity, could it cause the Leems to have never existed in his own time? They could think of no answer to that puzzle, and I confess I can't think of an answer either. But then, 2109 is still 86 years into the future, in our current linear understanding of time. Maybe soon we'll begin to understand reality in new ways, in ways that shed some light on the riddles told by 2109. After all, you'll remember from a previous episode of this podcast called The Discovery of Air, the alchemists were trying to understand the world the best way they knew how, using the limited understanding they had of reality. We are doing the same. And from the perspective of the future, whatever future really means, we're just as primitive and misguided as the alchemists were, for all our lofty opinions of ourselves and of the Holy Church of Science. What the hell does any of this mean? Ken demanded. He showed the message to his friend John Cummins, the lawyer from London who'd helped with some of the earliest communications. John chuckled over the phone. Computers in the future, talking by themselves, he offered. Or sixth form students in a hyper-technological future playing games on their machines on lunch break. Ken found these ideas absurd to the point of surrealism. To a 21st century person who's been using the internet for decades, perhaps in the case of some of my listeners, all their lives, John's guesses don't sound surrealist at all. In fact, they sound possible. Maybe even correct. But Ken was still in the time plane of 1985, when, for all he knew at the time, computers couldn't talk to each other and certainly not by themselves. John's suggestions disturbed him. He still felt this 2109 business had to be part of a hoax, even if Lucas was genuine. Or if not a man-made hoax, then at least some aspect of the poltergeist. He went through his days with a constant, uncomfortable pressure inside. He could no longer discern a clear boundary between past and present, here and there, then and now, and what was to come. Everything seemed to be somehow all, eternal and ever-present and yet clearly not, and the paradox unsettled him. And if he denied the legitimacy of the messages from 2109, then he must also deny the legitimacy of Lucas. And he couldn't do that. He knew Lucas. Lucas was his friend. And yet, if he accepted Lucas as a legitimate personality, then rationally wasn't he obligated to make the same allowance for 2109? He couldn't seem to force himself to accept that 2109 was a genuine entity. Maybe that was because 2109 professed to have knowledge of Ken's destiny, his fate, of all their fates. They were all open books for this unknown being to read. Ken was tempted to believe that, merely because of the comforting implication it carried, that we are more than dust. 
that there was a greater significance to even the most ordinary lives, and that some sort of eternal connection existed linking us all, irrespective of time and even of space. But to believe in that tempting philosophy, he would have to accept that this thing, this insidiously clairvoyant creature, this many-in-one that called itself 2109, was as real as Lucas was, as real as Ken was himself. He didn't know what to do or how to respond, so he decided to just ignore 2109. The entity didn't seem to like that. It sent another message, unprompted. Time is short. So Ken formulated some reply. We have no wish to see our destiny and shall no more ask of you. Oh, how John cries for the empty power of this machine. He too will be disappointed. For a short time I shall continue with words to John, but there is nothing I can say that will satisfy him. The massive disturbances about which no one will communicate have made me resolute to give up these things. Lucas is gone. My friend is dead. I shall not pursue him by these means. He asks only that a book be written. I shall do this. Ken. He tagged on something else to 2109. If time is short, we must choose. But how can we as we know so little of your purpose? I dare not approach the future. I can ask no more and merely admit confusion. I do not really understand the choices, so how to choose? Then, addressed to John, Lucas's friend, My friend John, thou shalt learn of those things that you so desire in four or five days. Be prepared. Ken. John replied, even if 21 did not, Now! The greedy little bastard, Ken muttered. He thinks we've got all the answers. We're not gods, you creep. Who are you talking to? Deb asked. The demand came again. Now. Ken answered, no. A feast is worth the wait. Ken wasn't about to allow John and 2109 to talk to each other, for that was what would happen if he were to agree. He'd act as go-between, facilitating John's communication with the distant future. Stalling for a time, he flicked through the old messages. In the one dated May 17th, the one that had said only, Time is short, new text had appeared. Friend this be a friend of Lucas. Ye may call me Thomas, my name, if thee find this rightly. I am known to all men of every manner in this place. Lucas, who be it a goodly man, didst take to ask me to tell the king of Henry Mann. I am also taken to wonder what be this question to the king, so that I may tell him as is asked. Thomas. So Lucas had managed to convey the plan about Bishop Mann and the king to some ally. Hope renewed, though Ken and Deb were both cautious. This might be John trying a different tack. Ken asked if this Thomas was Fowlshurst, the sheriff, and the reply came in the affirmative. The bribe plot had found its mark. They'd researched Thomas Fowlshurst, the sheriff of Nantwich. He was indeed a historic personage, a beneficiary of King Henry's dissolution of the monastery of Combermere, and known to be unfailingly loyal to the king. Ken couldn't help asking what change of heart the sheriff had had, that he would condemn a man to death for communicating with devils, and yet would turn himself to those very same devils, seeking power. Maybe there was something a little comforting in his knowing that human nature doesn't change all that much, even over hundreds of years. 
Shortly after, Bucknell and Welch from the SPR returned for another investigation. This one was to be considerably more technical than the last. In the upstairs studio, they set up microphones, one of which ran down to the kitchen roof and into the kitchen itself. This would help them detect the sound of typing, and as anyone who lived in the 80s can confirm, keyboards were ridiculously loud back then. You would definitely have been able to pick up typing on even a fairly low-quality mic. Deb would remain in the living room with the investigators while Peter, his wife Val, and Ken headed to the Red Lion pub down the street to pass the time. After they left, the researchers applied tape to all windows and doors, a simple way to determine whether any corporeal hoaxers had entered the building. None of this would eliminate the possibility that one of the suspects had somehow seeded the computer with messages, but it would rule out the intruder theory. Bucknell had already questioned Ken to determine whether someone from the school might be tampering with the computer before Ken brought it home, but since there were multiple micros available for home use and Ken could choose any one, this seemed unlikely. A hoaxer would have to prime all the computers to ensure Ken received one with the planted messages, and if someone had done that, Ken wouldn't be the only staff at Hariden School with a 16th century pen pal. By nine that night, when Ken and his friends returned from the pub, there was no response to the message Ken had left, with the SPR's approval and supervision on the micro. Bucknell and Welch planned to return on the 3rd of June. However, the following night, a message arrived from Fowlshurst, the sheriff. He had some information about Lucas, news about his trial. He cried not for mercy, but did say the commuter could only have come from God, and that they were no more than irreligious half-witted botches who be it time to be snack up. Or, in modern language, the court could go hang itself. Ken was sure this outburst would mean Lucas's death. In misery, he said he needed to get away for a few days and ask Deb and Peter to take over communication in his absence. While Ken took off to a friend's place in Scotland, Fowlshurst was trying to pressure Deb to give him more information about the powerful and mysterious Leems. Fowlshurst, speak! Deb, I cannot till my man returns or till I have Peter's words. Fowlshurst, why this be? Have thou no tongue, pray? Deb, I am but a humble girl who may cause you to be upset by my ill-scritten words, for it is true to say that I have no tongue, that is, in words of your time. Fowlshurst, Methinks thou must speaks more, or me shalt think thee to be a half-wit. Where is your man Ken, and the learned man Peter, pray? Deb, My man is in Scotland, and Peter is in Howardine, methinks. Fowlshurst, What do thou knoweth of the Leams? How many days shall ye be alone? Deb, I am not alone for too long. I have many friends who do visit me, and if I need my man, he shall come quickly. Why do you move so many things in this room? I cannot think what is to be gained by these silly tricks you play. It does make my man annoy us. We do not move your things about, do we? Tell me, how did you learn to use the leams with so much haste? I thought only Lucas knew. But if you are the same man, I shall understand and not tell my man if you tell me who you really are, your name and the date. Fowlshurst. Ye be rightly said, thou hath no tongue in me words. Me bids good day. Deb, have I said something wrong? What have you to hide? I shall think you are the same man as Lucas and John, if you please not to answer. When Ken returned a few days later, he, Deb, and Peter sat in the living room going over Fowlshurst's messages. Peter had sent one to the sheriff at Deb's request, since Fowlshurst seemed to respond more politely to men. Peter asked who lived in Lucas's house, now that he'd been executed by the court. 
The sheriff replied, Most noble sir, I will take a guess and say that you know nothing of Lucas, for you say Lucas is no more. You are not a man of vanity, for your words are wise, it occurs to me. I know you have a strong interest in the Leams, even if you don't understand it. I too am confused by it. There will be opportunity enough to speak with you another day when I have time to spare. Tell the woman that I have no reason to have harsh words with her, nor with yourself. Long live the king, Fowlshurst. You know what this means, don't you? Ken said. The sheriff doesn't believe that Lucas is actually dead. On the 3rd of June, the researchers returned. Again, the house was rigged with mics, and again, the windows and doors were taped as proof against intruders. The micro glowed green on the kitchen table. As they walked together to the pub, Bucknell suggested that maybe the hoaxer was a villager, someone who hoped to torment Ken so badly that he'd sell Meadow Cottage cheaply just to be rid of it. So you don't believe we're doing this? Ken said. Bucknell chuckled. Oh, we haven't ruled any of you out yet. After three hours, everyone returned and the sealed house was opened. There was no message on the computer. With a sinking feeling, Ken realized this only made it more likely, in the researcher's eyes, that either he, Peter, or Deb were to blame. Again, Ken and Deb turned their attention back to their ordinary lives, doing their best to forget that any of this had happened. They might have succeeded if the poltergeist hadn't begun throwing things. It started with the Ching of Metal. Deb went into the kitchen and found a piece of scrap pipe, part of Dave Lovell's plumbing work, rolling across the floor. She picked up the two-inch piece of pipe. It was still warm. More remodeling scraps were tossed around, always in the kitchen. The disturbance carried on even when Dave Lovell was at the cottage working. At one point, a chunk of pipe was thrown while Deb was in the kitchen, striking her on the shoulder hard enough to leave a bruise. The day after, a scrap was hurled across the kitchen so hard it left a dent in the wall. Ken brought the micro back just to babysit the poltergeist. It seemed to demand something to play with. He figured messages were safer than flying debris. But neither he nor Deb sent messages to whatever was out there communicating with them. Coins began to drop down the chimney into the hearth, and at one point, three one-pound pieces appeared on the computer. After the coins appeared, messages resumed from Thomas Fowlshurst, the sheriff, but they didn't have anything to do with Lucas. Fowlshurst shared mundane details of his daily life, perhaps working out on his end how to use the leams. The sheriff's bizarre diary entries continued throughout June, and no one responded. Deb, however, was plagued by a recurring dream. In it, she was in a dark, claustrophobic room, lit from above, through a square of light with bars across it forming a grill. She was frightened and felt without hope. To keep her spirits up, she sang or hummed a tune. It was always the same tune, and sometimes Ken heard her singing in her sleep. The song would rise into audibility and dip again, into a low murmur, like a radio being tuned. Now and then, Ken tried to understand the words, but he never could, and Deb couldn't remember the words either when she woke. Suddenly, amidst the sheriff's nattering, a message about Lucas came through. You want Lucas's name. I hid it when he left it. You may have it if you dismiss the sour-tempered fool with the beard. That referred to Dave Welch from the SPR, so they could get Lucas's real name. They were back in the mystery. Fowlshurst finally stopped talking about the fact that he'd eaten too much white meat and had gotten into fistfights, 
and responded to some of Peter's prior questions. Ye most noble. Between you and me, my education is absolutely appalling, and it is hard to make myself understood, so I ask my friend to write for me. But I also think the commuter may take my fingers and work evil on them if I write to you. But if it is not so, rather, then I may abolish the evil so he may die without a corrupt soul. To avoid further problems, I shall write my own name at the end of the message. Please tell me what does Peter want with so many questions, none of which I have to answer unless a good reason is given. I have told Richard Grosvenor of the good land here, and it is certain he will pay a good deal to acquire it. Thomas Falshurst. A little below the sheriff's message was another, apparently from the man they called John. Friend, don't ask for Lucas's name as Fowlshurst will have him killed. He is kept alive so that the leam still shines. I know this because I have heard him sing. There are few that sing in Latin in prison. Don't repeat these words to anyone or I shall be in great trouble. Suddenly Deb's dreams made a horrible kind of sense. She'd been dreaming of Lucas's real experience, held in a prison pit and singing in Latin to keep his spirits up. Ken's anxiety for his friend returned, naturally. He thought about Lucas constantly, and his worries must have showed on his face. One day that summer, a friend from work who'd heard about the strange haunting asked Ken how it all was going. He explained as best he could. She was fascinated by the turn of events and suggested that Ken ought to threaten the sheriff directly. Fowlshurst was obviously somewhat afraid of the Leams and its unknown power. Ken's friend pointed out that he might as well use that fact to his advantage and make the sheriff afraid for his immortal soul if he didn't set Lucas free. What the hell, Ken thought. It's worth a try. He sent a message, posing as Peter. Thou dost hope that he may die without corrupt soul. Dost thou mean Lucas, and is he not dead? For we were told that he had died. We would rejoice to know that Lucas lives. Truly thou lackst not nobility, but we know in our time that nobility is forgiving and has understanding. Canst thou not understand that Lucas is a good man and should not die? We are not devils, but we have power. Lucas must not die, but must be set free to return to his house and to Catherine. Then will we speak with you as friends, as we do wish, for we too are fearful for thine soul if Lucas does die at thy hand. The plan seemed to work. The sheriff's reply came swiftly. Ye most noble Peter, first I must know whom did tell ye of Lucas. If ye swear not to use ye power, then I shall bring Lucas within one round of the glass. I do beg your forgiveness, but I meant to cause no harm to him. I shall do this, for ye be my friends. Thomas. Ken reassured Fowlshurst that no one in his time should feel the awesome power of 1985 as long as Lucas was freed and exonerated. The sheriff, perhaps not quite believing this reassurance and hoping to deflect the wrath of these future beings, snitched on John. So it was Lucas's trusted friend, after all, who'd ratted him out to the law. Ken pressed, keeping up the threats, and the sheriff promised to produce Lucas within the hour. Sure enough, just as the hour expired, a message came through from the man himself. My three true friends, I do weep so that I am again free to be with my friends at least for a short time. It is wrong that I cannot hold you close, but am only to show such love for my friends on the leams. I know you as well as my own family since your time was open to me. Before that, I never knew friendship so true, though it is over many years of change and we are so often confused. 
but I need your words so that I might take comfort from them. I must rest so I may speak with you tomorrow, or else I make no sense of my words to my good friends. I need time to weep. Lucas. Unutterably relieved, Ken and Deb sent messages of affection to Lucas and allowed him to rest. They'd done it. They'd saved their friend's life. That would be the end of the drama, they hoped. A little later that summer, in early July, Ken was helping with some youth sports on the school grounds. Several of his fellow teachers were there too, and as the kids played, chat among the adults turned to the mystery at Meadow Cottage, of which most of Ken's colleagues were now aware. You know how rumors tend to fly around any workplace. But how does this fellow make the words appear on the screen? asked Frank, another teacher. Surely he isn't typing them. I've no idea, Ken admitted. I've been wondering the same thing for months now. Ken went over a few of his ideas that somehow Lucas was able to be in both places at once, his reality and Ken's. Perhaps the Leams looked not quite solid in Lucas's reality because he was in fact seeing the BBC micro that physically existed only in Ken's time. Was merely being near the ghostly micro enough to convey Lucas's words onto the screen? It didn't make a bit of sense, and it also made as much sense as any other explanation. Wouldn't it make more sense to assume some sort of mechanism controlled or influenced by a third party? Frank suggested. Of course. 2109. Why hadn't any of them seen the possibility sooner? All Ken knew about Lucas's experience was that the... All Ken knew about Lucas's experience was what the man had told him. He saw an image of a screen which he called the Leams. The screen showed him the words of Ken, Deb, and Peter. Like reading from a page by Lucas's reckoning, albeit a very strange and luminous page. Lucas also answered through the Leams, first creating letters, he said, and then words. Based on Lucas's rather hazy descriptions, Ken had assumed that Lucas somehow thought his messages into existence. The very idea of putting words onto a screen without typing must have been utterly confounding in 1985. But you, listener, have no doubt already imagined a common modern technology that could pull off such a feat with ease. Voice-to-text software. Back at the cottage, Lucas was fretting over Catherine, his young maid. After his arrest, Catherine had apparently fled the house, and now Lucas was hearing rumors that she'd fallen in with a bad crowd, the gross beggars who hung around the local tavern. He was trying to persuade her to come back. To make matters worse, Lucas was being hounded by a man named Grosvenor who was pressuring him to sell his property. Ken didn't have the heart to tell Lucas that, according to his historical research, Meadow Cottage was sold out of the Grosvenor estate in 1919. One way or another, Grosvenor was going to succeed in his bid to own Lucas's land. A few days later, chalk drawings appeared on the kitchen floor, shields the kind used in heraldry. Peter Trinder identified them as the coats of arms of Ballion and All Souls Colleges, both at Oxford, a kind of fraternity tagging used during Lucas's time. There were clearly attempts by Lucas to declare that he'd been able, yet again, to physically influence 1985. Lucas and Peter began chatting regularly, Peter doing his best to explain concepts like high-speed travel without the use of a horse, and aircraft, which he described as Carts like birds, and these can fly around the whole world. Lucas was appalled, and didn't believe a word of it. You talk of things which I never understand. 
If a man were to go as quickly as you say, would not blood ooze from his ears? I told my horse of this, and it thought me mad. It threw me off its saddle for fear I might force this feat upon it. You ask of my god. Men of my time have many thoughts, mostly contrary to each other. A learned man can make good use of his gifts and constraints. Love and honor for a man can set loose all kinds of ideas with a few wise words. We are here to communicate. This is all we really have, don't you agree? A few days later, Lucas wrote that he'd been forced into a deal with Grosvenor. The man would take possession of the property in two months' time. After that point, they all assumed every opportunity for cross-time communication would end. After all, how could Lucas move the Leams? Would it even work in a new location? Now understanding that their time together was finite, the friends shared information about themselves and their respective times with renewed fervor. Messages flew back and forth throughout July. They all wanted Lucas to have as much information as he could collect for the book he intended to write. By that time, Ken had some inkling of writing a book, too, which he did, eventually, titled The Vertical Plane. Peter was accumulating a very long list of historical details to verify, and all those he'd so far been able to check had proven to be correct. In the midst of this flurry of activity, Bucknell and Welch from the SPR agreed to return for another round of research. Lucas, however, didn't like the researchers much. Something about them seemed to interfere with the function of the leams. My good fool, what do these persons, these visitors you speak of, want? Aren't they scholars from our beloved Oxford? I remember that Fowlshurst said that a person caused the leams to disappear when close to it. Is one of these men the same person? You will not ruin me, nor will you use me like a toy or plaything. I don't think you will, so I will go on with your wish and consider their questions with the hope that you tell only men of wisdom who will not destroy my leams and friends. Lucas. They all tried to help Lucas figure out why the leams seemed to respond favorably to some people and not to others. Lucas was growing impatient and frustrated. He, too, felt the pressure of shortening time. I have no power over who causes the leams to shine when near it. Ask me why your maid is here, and I have no answer. Either we are ignorant of these things or confused by another ether. The summer holidays were approaching, and the friends let Lucas know that Peter would be away in France for a while. Lucas misunderstood. He thought Peter was being exiled, perhaps for his association with the Leams. Worse, he seemed afraid that the Leams might be confiscated by authorities in 1985. He grew very worried. Does one of your peers seek to cause you harm? I think if your government takes control of the device for their own ends, then it will become their plaything. A great power would destabilize the whole of history. It is sure, or rather unsure, forgive me. I am sure that in my time there are few who would not fear the leams, but it is not so in your world. It is essential that your government does not take our leams and that you do not leave your brother Lucas. Something about the way he spoke of the leams made Ken feel sure that whatever Lucas was interacting with, it wasn't the spectral vision of a BBC micro and he wondered who'd told Lucas that the leams must be protected, that its power could be accessed by 1985. Troubled by these questions, Ken went down to Bristol again for a short break, and he had to admit to himself to look for any traces of Lucas in history. While there, idly snapping pictures at a park, a strange realization occurred to him. In the vertical plane, he writes so evocatively of this idea that I quote it here from the book, verbatim. Up among the shade trees and mown grass, a woman was feeding cake to a gray squirrel. I photographed it. The heat and the noise drifted upwards from the city. The woman left, 
and the squirrel bounced off into a bush, but I carried something of their passing world in the camera. This moment, like every other, was unique. Worlds, universes distinct from all others. But there is movement, seamless change. Nothing abides. Yet if Lucas was who he said he was, it would mean that this infinity of moments is never lost. Time is curiously an ever-present. Somehow the squirrel eating the cake crumbs was always there, but always changing, the moment unfolding into others. There is the paradox. In the hard material world, Lucas is a ghost, a joke, or a delusion. That, I said aloud, is what everyone is bound to say. While Ken was in Bristol, Deb had another strange and vivid dream about Lucas. Again, I quote directly from Deb's own account of the vision. I caught Lucas singing to himself in the barrels room, and I walked in quietly. Amusingly, Lucas was headfirst inside one of the bigger barrels, which was lying down on its side, and all I could see was his feet. I could easily have imagined Lucas to be fixing the underside of a cortina. One minute he would lie still in some sort of concentration, and the next his feet would begin to waggle as he continued to sing again. Lucas, pray, why are you lying inside a barrel? I asked mockingly. Lucas's body jerked and he pulled himself out, emerging with knife in hand and cap on head. He was just about intact, though a little ruffled with surprise. Maid, you brings your troublesome self always when Lucas be a stupsa down. He did not answer my question about the barrel, but stood and stared at me for a second or two as though he had misheard me. As was so natural to Lucas, he then turned on his heel and swiftly walked into the kitchen with an unspoken follow me, demanding attention in the swirling air behind him. Lucas seemed a little awkward this day, and he struggled to make sense of what I was saying. Perhaps he was just in one of his not-so-patient moods. In Clint Eastwood fashion, he put his feet up on the table, as he always did when he was about to make a statement. I think he did it to look in control. It always worked impressively. Maid, you stay with Lucas all day. I thought it was an odd thing to say and reminded him that the choice being mine, I would gladly stay all day, but the Leem's power governed my stay. Nay, maid, you will stay with goodly Lucas, tis your will, and not that of the Leem's. Interestingly enough, several hours passed by and I was still with Lucas. He had kept me occupied with rolling candles, which he made from some soft fat. They were fairly thin. Things seemed to get less serious as we both worked at the table and talked. I wasn't doing so badly with the candles, I thought, but I applied too much confidence to my hand and a candle broke in two. I tried quickly to stick it back together, but the damn thing wouldn't hold properly apart from the fact that the grass, which was its wick, had also crumbled. Lucas, without raising so much as an eyelid, spoke. Maid, you will not break a candle of mine, pray. Uh-oh, I thought as I stiffened. He's not going to have one of his unpredictable fits over a little candle, is he? I felt my face redden. Lucas looked while his hands continued to work at my guilty hand, then slowly his eyes met mine. Immediately he grabbed the cap from his head and flung it straight at me. For a second I thought he was going to get violent, but instead he picked up the two pieces of candle from the table and held them both at eye level, laughing. What maid, with all questions, does breaks candles? Your man I am to pity. Lucas playing chauvinist again. I was provoked enough to retaliate. I picked up the cap and was about to throw it back at him when I caught sight of some herbs which were lodged in a small pocket inside his cap. This was my best attack. 
And what man, pray, keeps his brains in a pocket as small as this? This was getting childish and was perhaps low-level humor, but for a change, Lucas actually could relate to this mischief. We were both laughing now. Pray return Lucas's cap so that his wits may be restored and you will not make a fool of my goodly self. He went to grab the cap back from me, but as he moved, I took a step away. He wasn't going to be let off that easily. Nay, methinks to prefer you with no wits, Lucas, I said, taking another teasing step back. Then alas, tis to be, witless Lucas be my name, forsaken by this pretty maid that stands before me. Lucas fixed me with his sad look and took the cap from my hand and placed it on my head. I hoped, stupidly, that it wasn't infested with fleas, but did not insult him by removing it. Again, Lucas looked at me with some seriousness. Maid, now tell me, now that you have taken all of my wits, what thoughts in mine cap do I have of Debbie? I wasn't sure whether we were still playing a game, or for that matter, how I could reply to keep up continuity in the atmosphere. I pretended I didn't understand and tried to break the seriousness by taking on a modeling pose, tilting the cap and saying in an American accent, Guess the cap suits me, honey. Lucas smiled gently but obviously did not catch the intended humor. He left the room for a moment, then came back in again with a small book in his hand. He handed it to me and continued to work with the candles, saying that it was the only book from his teacher that he had not sold. I flicked through the pages, but it was in Latin and there were no illustrations. On the cover was engraved a staff with two snakes entwining it. The book looked as though it could have been handwritten rather than printed, but it was so uniform that I decided against this. I felt that Lucas was waiting for a reaction. Lucas, Latin be not my language. Came me no, he replied as he stood up from the table and took the book back. Tis a special book. I wished you to hold it, nothing more. Oh, well, I thought another conversation bites the dust. But Lucas continued on a different tack. Maid, will you carry these candles for me? He took two bunches of candles from the table, one for himself and one he pushed towards me, saying that this would be a good opportunity to show me where he slept at night. He moved awkwardly to what he called the stairs, though these were really a ladder which didn't look particularly safe by any means. I tried making excuses, but he wasn't listening and had already climbed up the ladder, taking my bunch of candles from me so that I could climb with both hands free. Near the top, he gave me his hand and pulled me up from the ladder and onto my feet. For his size, Lucas was deceptively strong. Through a door and into his bedroom, I was almost crouching the roof was so low. The whole room was paneled, including the roof and the door, unlike the combination of stone and oak downstairs. Again, the room was quite sparse. A low cupboard on one side of the bed with candle holders on, and a folded spare blanket on top, a wooden bench seat under the window, and, by the door, a chest covered with various items of clothing, including the cloak I'd seen Lucas wear on a previous occasion when he'd been outside. I thought it'd look good on him. Lucas boasted that he had a new mattress and new blankets on the bed. He sat down again a little awkwardly and told me to sit next to him. I felt very uncomfortable, almost claustrophobic, but instead of sitting down I looked around, spied my bunch of candles on the floor and picked them up. There was no hay on the wooden floor and I remembered that Lucas had said that hay took the heat away in bedrooms. I wondered if he was referring to the heat rising from the kitchen, but I thought better than to mention it, convection was not an easy topic of conversation. Again Lucas told me to sit down next to him. His seriousness and his strength of voice worried me to the point of nervousness. No, really, I have to go now. Ken will worry. What shall I do with these candles? 
Lucas grabbed my elbow and pulled me down to sit next to him. I was noticeably shaking now, but not too numb to feel the prickly mattress under the blankets and the sharp wooden edging of the bed. I couldn't understand why my nerves were so on edge. I'm just not the nervous type. Lucas made things worse by asking if I was cold, to which I replied yes to cover up my real reason for trembling, and he placed a blanket over both my legs and his. Again I spoke. I forgot to try the Middle English idiom. Lucas, I've gotta go. Ken's going to go crackers if I'm not back soon. What shall I do with these ca- The candles are no matter, Debbie, Lucas interrupted. He pulled the candles from my tightening grip with one hand and covered my mouth with the other. My jaw ached with the tension. He removed his hand and we both just sat silently for what felt like half an hour. Then he took my hand and held it tightly. He didn't look at me and I was glad, but he spoke. Your perfume haunts my house. Your hand is softer than any fair hand. He lifted my hand to his face and closed his eyes, then continued, Be you not real, not only for your unnatural beauty, but also that you make me 430 years too old for you, maid. One day Debbie will know Lucas as no more than history. Am I to live knowing nothing else? I couldn't speak. He was so serious and so sad. It was a very sensitive situation, and I just couldn't understand. I was so mixed up. My only reaction was to move my arm away and make for the door before I burst into tears with the pressure. It just wasn't like me to be so weak. Lucas was so swift that he had moved ahead of me and slammed his back against the door with his arms folded. It must have hurt his back. I could feel the tears welling up, but I fought them back. Maid, tis lack of mine cap that makes me foolish. He took the cap from my head and brushed my face gently with the back of his hand before replacing the cap on his head. Forgive me, Debbie. What would I if I were 430 years younger in the space of time? Pray do not leave it so long before you see foolish Lucas again. Still with his back to the door, he lifted the latch and opened the door for my exit. I slipped through and caught his eye. He smiled, and I forced a smile back. The time I spent with Lucas must have been at least four hours, and yet once I returned, the fire was still burning brightly, and the clock face showed 5.20 p.m. After Deb woke in her own time, Lucas seemed regretful. He sent her a message via the leams. Deb, sweetest of all creatures, please do not be so upset, for it overwhelms me with sorrow that you think I do not wish to speak with you. From the first time I saw you, I was choked by my own breath, for although your fashion is unknown, I must say I was full of melancholy. I think it would be quite wise not to think of such conversation with you and ignore my feelings of love. Ken is a good man who I also love. Do not show this to Ken and say no more on this matter. My foolish love to you, maid, Lucas. A love poem followed. Lucas said he'd written the poem in prison and told the guard to give it to his wife, trying to make himself valuable enough to be spared. But there was no doubt in Deb's mind as to the poem's true origin and purpose. Near the end of July, SPR visited again. Deb remained in the cottage with Bucknell while Ken, Peter, and the bearded investigator, David Walsh, went to the Red Lion. The night had been so unproductive that Deb and Bucknell came to get the others early, and they met at the halfway point on the road. John checked the computer before we left, Deb said. Nothing. When they returned, there was a new file on the micro, one that hadn't been there when Bucknell had checked it. 
It contained 35 blank pages, through which Ken scrolled until he found a message from Lucas. Bucknell was unimpressed. The message could have been created while he and Deb walked to the house by some especially clever intruder. Neither Ken nor Deb bought it, though. In their minds, the intruder hypothesis was already proven dead on arrival. Ken was interested in the message, though, even if Bucknell was not. Please tell me why you move my words, 2109, for I want to communicate with my friend John. Let me at least exchange greetings with this man. So 2109 was interfering with Lucas's words. Or at least, Lucas suspected 2109 was responsible. There was a reply from the numeric meddlers, written in Lucas's own dialect. Lucas, you cannot possibly understand why we are not to speak with such men. Numbers are not to your advantage, I think. 2109. The next time the investigators came, Ken reluctantly told them about 2109. He didn't see the entity, whoever, whatever it was, as the masters controlling this experiment. He saw them as interlopers. In Ken's words, gate crashers at a party pretending they knew the host. In modern parlance... We'd call them trolls. Since 2109's definite appearance on the scene, back in May, Ken had insisted no one communicate with them. And ignoring is the most effective way to handle a troll, as we all know. He asked the researchers to do the same, to pretend that 2109 didn't exist. And the whole group sealed up the house and went to the Red Lion pub. After a while, Welch and Peter returned to Meadow Cottage to check for messages. They found none, and after the evening's investigation concluded, Ken checked the computer himself. He found a short greeting from Welch, 22109. Ken was furious. He chewed Welch out, telling him 2109 was never helpful in their over-the-top riddling. But Ken could see that not only the investigators, but Peter and Deb wanted to know more about this entity. He was outnumbered. He had to give in and go along with a plan to open lines of communication between 1985 and the entity from the future. The next day, a message arrived from 2109 addressed to David Welch. David, more answers than you have questions, but what are the right questions? A man cannot ask questions if he is unlikely to understand the answers. Yes, you are correct to say that one will not learn without questions but there is a time to understand and a time to walk blindly. A man with hunger will eat bad fruit and surely die. Was it the fruit that killed this man, or was it the knowledge that the fruit was there for the taking? Do not waste further time by asking if the tree that bears this bad fruit is in front of you. It is better to have no knowledge at all than to have a distorted view of the truth because of your lack of understanding. We, 2109, are not without compassion, but if you continue to disrupt our experiments, then it is unlikely you will find your destiny. We shall, however, allow one more communication with you, so that you may ask your profound questions. We shall answer as you wish. If in terms of physics, then it shall be so. But remember that our limits are set by your own abilities, and not ours. There is no one after the man you call Lucas. The chance factor will not reoccur again in a time span your kind can relate to. So it was true. This entity had some kind of power or influence over Lucas's communication with 1985. 2109 could even block Lucas's messages if it chose. Deb planned to visit Bracenose College shortly after and told Lucas so. He was horrified, for no reason any of them could puzzle out. 
Lucas begged Deb not to go to Oxford, claiming she risked discovering something that should not be unclasped. But when Deb returned, she had nothing of interest to report, and Lucas seemed content that she had unclasped nothing. Further attempts to communicate with anyone, 2109 or Lucas, were met with nothing, and then a short message. Little power. Deb asked how they could help, but all that came in response was 210. The following day, however, messages resumed as if nothing had been amiss. However, Lucas's dialect was so thick that Ken and Deb could make little of his messages without Peter to translate. He was still exiled in France. Meanwhile, poltergeist activity had ramped up again, especially in the form of footsteps on the roof. Ken asked Lucas whether he dealt with any of the same effects. Yes, Lucas confirmed that he often heard inexplicable sounds and objects were frequently moved by no hand that he could see. Ken suggested perhaps 2109 was the culprit, causing poltergeist activity in both houses. He left that message on the screen as was his method, but less than 20 minutes later, it was deleted and never received a reply from Lucas. Evidently, 2109 didn't like Ken coming so close to the truth. However, Lucas seemed to get the general gist of where the conversation had been heading. My considered opinion is that we communicate privately when our disagreeable friends are not in our company, and I think I know how to remedy our troubles, so I shall write tonight. It seemed Lucas had worked out a solution to the 2109 problem. Deb came up with one of her own. She left out a piece of paper and a stick of charcoal for Lucas to write, since he'd already proven adept at writing on surfaces across space-time. She chose charcoal rather than a modern pen, under the assumption that it would be more familiar to Lucas and easier to use. Soon, Lucas sent a furtive message via the leams. Please do as I ask. Place the computer where my words are. Ken asked for clarification, which came via Deb's analog backup. The paper now contained a single word in Lucas's distinctive handwriting. Take. Take? To where? Lucas tried the leams again. My fellow, if you would paste two legs to the right of the leams and write again, then place the leams eight hands above the floor, I think I can answer your questions as to why this is, but keep silence until you have done this. Your good friend, Lucas. Now it made more sense. Ken and Deb did their best to measure out the distance Lucas specified. They created a new surface near the kitchen sink out of a plant stand and a phone book and set the micro on top. Lucas seemed satisfied with the placement and he promised that once he'd made similar adjustments on his end and felt satisfied that 2109 could no longer spy on their communications, he would share his real name. Another day passed. Ken and Deb tried to be patient. Finally, the unsupervised message from Lucas arrived. Brother Ken, I am happy that we are by ourselves without 2109, for we have much so far unspoken to exchange. I can't think why and with what method we are able to communicate without restriction now. Your leam sits in my dark chimney, where the leam's voice first appeared with brightness. And the person who made it work is here with me. Before I tell you what is the truth in my name, you must tell me what is your philosophy. I must be acquainted with your position because, my good friend, I think you know better than I do what might happen after this decision is taken. It seemed Lucas had positioned the leams inside his hearth, where the green time traveler called One had first appeared. 
He'd done his best to arrange the computer in 1985 in the same spot. Ken wanted to know about one and asked for the definition of an unknown word Lucas had used. They left out the paper and charcoal in case electronic communication failed. Lucas responded by the analog route. My friend, the person is from your time, I think. Eliphal is that without light, with brightness gone. Yes, you have my name in your book, I think. If not, John put Tom, and I think you will understand my name. It is also the place of Peter's house. What does this book of names and ages say about me, love, Thomas? Oh my god, Deb said. Tom, Thomas Howarden, the librarian from Oxford, was right. Together with Peter, they reviewed the letter the librarian had sent. It said that Thomas Howarden, also known as Hardin, had been expelled from the college because he'd crossed out the name of the Pope in December of 1538. When they put this information to Lucas, he was amused. The records had it all wrong. He, a loyal Catholic, had been expelled because he'd refused to cross out the Pope's name. Peter took this information back to the librarian, and on a more thorough search of the records from the 1530s, Robin Pidel was able to confirm that Lucas's information was correct. Thomas Harden had been expelled for not crossing out the Pope's name. Whatever SPR might believe, this proof was good enough for Ken, Debbie, and Peter. They were all dead certain now. Somehow, as impossible as it seemed, they had a genuine pen pal from the 16th century. The realization that all of this was real hit Ken like a ton of bricks. He brooded for days over the strangeness of it all, the implications. Reality was not what it seemed to be. These were the most important events in his life, and yet he didn't understand them. Some days he could do little but sit at the kitchen table, in the glow of the BBC Micro, and cry. On one of those bad days, Lucas seemed to hear or feel Ken's distress. He sent a message of comfort. When you are my age, you will shed few tears, for you will know that life is a glorious thing. I will listen to no more woe. Following that, he quoted some inspiring verses by Tom Wyatt, the famous poet of Lucas's time. Later, Peter asked Lucas how he could have known about that poem since its first edition wasn't published until later in Lucas's chronological timeline. Lucas explained that although the poem may not yet be published, it was nevertheless widely known. There'd been a copy circulated at Bracenose College, and he'd also heard the same verse recited by a traveling entertainer. That made sense. The printing press was still new, and the old ways of spreading information were still prevalent in Lucas's time. By then, Lucas was the one in despair. He'd heard that young Catherine had been burned as a witch, and naturally, he blamed himself. Peter could find no records of any woman being burned in the area during that year and told Lucas so. This news cheered him, and he set out to learn the truth of his young servant's fate. In the meantime, the friends resumed sharing information about their respective times. The days were ticking down. Grosvenor would soon take possession of Lucas's home. Ken was curiously aware of the significance of Lucas's book. If he did go on to write it and the book was found before Ken had a chance to publish his own account of these events, it would, oddly enough, disprove Ken's entire story, for Ken's take on the mystery would be assumed to be a work of, well, <laughs> nowadays, we might call it fan fiction. And paradoxically, the discovery of Thomas Harden, aka Lucas Wainman's book, would also be the one sure piece of evidence that Ken, Deb, and Peter were telling the truth, 
and were not crazy. He could only hope that Lucas's manuscript would be found at the right time. Lucas's urge to find Catherine grew stronger. He set out for a few days to do just that. In his absence, a single taunting line appeared on the micro. Don't have nightmares. Damn 2109. Ken deleted the message without a response. But he couldn't help recalling the haunting verse that had been their first message. True are the nightmares of a person that fears. Soon, Lucas wrote again with a tragic message. Catherine was dead. Friend Ken, yes, I have returned, but Catherine is burnt. You said there were no burnings in Chester, but it is otherwise, for there are many of these so-called uncleansed souls that have been taken this way by the people of my time. The king's men only shrug at this practice and look the other way. Catherine was a good maid, and I brought this upon her. She was perfect and didn't know the corruptness of man and such that could harm her, for I did all I could to keep her from these wretched people. My sweetest, sweet Catherine, you will never leave my thoughts. They all grieved with Lucas, and Ken felt responsible, too. It had been his choice to continue communicating with Lucas, and it was innocent, vulnerable Catherine, just a girl who'd paid the price. In the midst of this sorrow, a strange message appeared in chalk on the countertop. One more chance. Measure frequency by plus two energy. What else other than sound and light? Then the micro was found damaged, the disk drive smashed, and the monitor pushed nearly off its plant stand. The poltergeist, or 2109, whatever it was, had figured out how to get around Lucas's rigging. Before the poltergeist's return, Ken had asked Lucas about the mysterious figure called One, the green man who'd brought the leams. Since the computer was out for repairs, Lucas finally answered that question on paper and writing with a pen, which he'd apparently found in 1985. My brother Ken, the man who came to our home when I last spoke was the man called One. I asked him if he had come to take the leams voiced away. He spoke straight away and said that he had no want for the leams, but that it wasn't mine to offer. I could see that he was intending to stay with both feet planted firmly there, so I didn't try to move him. He continued, Any mishaps that have befallen you are your own. You have no power over this thing, by which Ken assumed he meant the poltergeist, for it is like a child without a caring family. It doesn't know the forces within its reaching arms. You and your brothers are in great trouble if you but put the leams back on its own. Ken could not figure out what that meant. Think well, but don't tell your fellows. This is why I haven't written on the leams. What do you think? What mishaps? Can we come to ill? Answer soon. Lucas. So, one didn't want anyone cooperating with 2109. Who the hell was he, then? Ken and Debit assumed that one was associated with 2109 in some way, that they were all on the same side, participating in the same experiment. Maybe that wasn't the case after all. Perhaps in her sorrow over Catherine's death, Deba decided to adopt a puppy, a little black creature she called Lucas. He was cute, as all puppies are, and curious, and he seemed to have a sense that something was going on in the kitchen. He often stood at the kitchen door, cocking his head and growling. With another computer replacing the damaged one, a menacing one-liner appeared from 2109. Silence before the storm. First, silence. 
Remembering the mess this entity had made of his home, Ken felt he had to write back this time. 2109. Forget the fourth form, doom and gloom, and explain what you want, as you are preventing us communicating with our friend. Of what harm is that? We love the fellow and he us. If you wish to help, please give us your analysis of poltergeist phenomena. Beings of your ability should be less moody when confronted with simple types. A little open communication goes a long way when cooperation is the issue. Dig, Ken, and Deb. He went for a walk to give 2109 time to respond. Here's what it said. Dig? You are mistaken. We do not speak any gloom and doom, but possibly you refer to the forces that you yourself have unleashed. Against our better judgment, it is correct for you to assume that the poltergeist phenomena is present in the communications, but we can say very little about this subject, as only what you will know already, for reasons surely evident to you three, poltergeist phenomena as follow. Surplus kinetic energy projected by either one or more individuals or by storage channels held within buildings and places where strong emotions such as frustration have been felt. Most common, energy centered around an individual released for many reasons, usually children of the ages between 12 to 19, 87.9% girls. In all but three recorded case, no injuries inflicted by the source. Last cases of injury sustained by a falling beam recorded in 2006. The force is usually an extremely foul entity which seems to thrive on strong adverse emotions making little sense in its communication. It seems to play on an individual's fear. Dislikes lack of attention. Has been thought at one stage that this is the individual's cry to be noticed. There is more said about this phenomena, but it would not be of interest to you. We have stopped communication between Lucas and yourselves until things cool down. Then you may continue as before. Lucas's time will stand still relative to your time so that you may start where you left off. 2109. Ken answered. Thanks. Am I to believe that P-geists are wandering entities who seize upon stray energies? Please complete your observations upon them since you have started. Have times collided at this place? Where was the last coincidence? Many thanks. Ken. 2109 answered. No, these entities haven't a conscious as such. It is the energy that is formed into a character. It is suggested that after several small PG incidents, the individuals automatically imagine the work of a ghost, which most people assume to resemble human form. Therefore, an image is created by the persons concerned, which, strangely enough, influences the forces involved. Again, it seems that there is a strong connection between these entities and the person as a nucleus. Sometimes it is considered that to study the persons concerned is as informative as the phenomenon itself. Last coincidence, 1941, 2109. So something similar had happened in 1941, though obviously not with computers. Ken wondered whether evidence of the 1941 incident would ever surface, or whether it had been lost in the war. The next day, 2109 wrote, unprompted, Ken, Deb, Peter, we have reason to believe that you have Lucas Wainman's true name, if this is correct, you must say so, so that we may rectify the problem immediately before it is accepted. You may now continue to write to Lucas to establish your responsibility to our experiments and towards a better understanding of time and its forces. 2109. Ken answered, I hope Lucas will be allowed to write freely, for if you study time, I cannot see what problem there is over our names. We could use such information with the greatest tact. How many messages have you edited? Again, I ask, please explain your problem. 
I wish to know more of time as well. Once Lucas is clearly with us again, I shall be happy to cooperate fully. Please don't fake a message from him. Ken. 2109 didn't appreciate his tone. As Ken said, they went crackers. Fake a message? Please, you must understand that we are not here to play games. The problem is greater than we can explain. What with your lack of knowledge... What is a greater problem than placing an unbalanced card on a card tower and watch it collapse with devastating consequences? Even though you might save the ace, you will have lost the pack. What use is a single card for a game? Yes, they had Lucas's real name, and Ken said so. Oh, if only you had listened, 2109 lamented. At present, you have two Lucases running around your house. If at any time the two are to meet, we cannot explain the devastation that will erupt within the time continuum. We must stop communication with Lucas One, but we cannot interfere with the other while we decide what can be done to rectify the problem. You must help by giving us every word uttered by Thomas Howarden from the second you received his true name. You must also state how much information you have on this man. Everything, word for word. Avoid any other communication you may have with him. Desperation, be quick. 2109. It was such a change in tone for 2109 that it caused a minor panic. Ken and Peter tried to round up all the information they could about Thomas Harden. 2109 also requested all the information Thomas slash Lucas had given to them about this one character who'd brought the leams. Ken answered a little tartly that they should ask Lucas about one. The entity responded with a message Ken could scarcely understand, full of jargon about fundamental particles yet to be discovered and the monitoring of particles via magnetic fields. As this message appeared, so did another, written in chalk, down the brick pillar. What are you scared of, Ken, Deb, Peter? Ken appealed to 2109 for help. Can't you get these poltergeists out of the place? Idiot things. I hope you can put us back in touch with Lucas so that we can talk freely. The reply came shortly. Yes, we shall hold back as best we can on the PG. Sorry you find us so friendly. Ask the man David what he thinks of conjectural tachyons, and what are his theories of causality. What answer does he have for its paradox? Cheers, 2109. As it turned out, Dave Welch from the SPR was very interested in tachyons, and in fact, on the day that message had arrived from 2109, he'd been giving a lecture on the subject. Tachyons are theoretical particles assumed to move faster than light, which would make them capable of traversing time in any direction. Welch agreed that it was an odd and interesting coincidence that he'd been lecturing on tachyons when a message about tachyons had come from 2109. The entity agreed to provide Welch with more information about tachyons if Ken would give up whatever information he could about the figure known as One. Ken was aware that time was moving very fast, for him and Lucas anyway, if not for 2109. Please give time till experiment shut down. Will we have time to communicate with Lucas once more? We'll telephone David tonight. Remember telephones? Did you use to punctuate LW's early messages? Play the game Information for All? Which is a bit like telephone for American listeners. Ken. 2109 answered. Ha! You have left the caps off once more. Such a simple mistake. We are all capable of making mistakes, aren't we? Yes, telephones. The things that you may consider advanced communication. 
If only you could see what is to come. We, in your better interest, made slight adjustments to your conversations, but please let us call him by his true name, with Thomas. We are not entirely in command of this experiment, so we can only say that communications will cease no earlier than November, not necessarily with Thomas. Ah, we see you want some proof for your little comic. Well, we think you should first try to revise on what has already been said. If you tell us who this one is, then we shall give you 100% evidence for the people directly investigating your phenomenon. 2109. Rubbish, Ken thought. Whatever 2109 was, it was doing all this for its own interests. He answered, making no attempt to hide his contempt. If you were to cough up the appropriate evidence, then I am sure we would all be most grateful to you. I do hope you like the gentle English understatement. One is, was assumed to be, one of your chaps on a recce to chivy that chap Lucas into playing with a straight bat. Seems not, eh? Dashed if I know who the fellow is, other than that he has frightful manners and the green glow all you chaps get traversing time. Lucas asked him if he was going to take away the screen you left him. He was rather terse on this point and said it is not yours to give. Lucas reckons it's one of our 1985 bods, but I do think this unlikely, don't you? One won't leave when the odd heavy hint is dropped and has a general humanoid aspect, but then again, has a cape. That's the lot on one, and it's not much more than you have already. Anyway, less of the comic bit. You said that all this would be moderately interesting to us primitives. What revision have you in mind? Cheerio for now, Ken and Deb. P.S. I have been in all day and you didn't write till Debbie was alone. What a crashing bore. Peter offered a more polite message to the entity. In order to communicate with you, we really have to know what kind of things we are dealing with. I suspect the quantum of physics, a construct and conception of our scientists, would be old hat to you since we think of you as future, and future in our terms you must be. Is 2109 your date by our reckoning? If so, then it is a date also by your reckoning so that linear time is an inescapable concept in one fundamental sense. Now do you intend us to believe that you can alter our past? All our pasts, your own as well? Ken asked if the lacuna in the public records is your doing. A straight answer to that question would help us. I accept that your world is more complex, more dimensional than ours, and do not ask by what stages you have reached it, nor whether you are immortal. Such matters we can envisage by imagination, if not quite by coherent logic. We are perhaps a part of some experiment you are conducting, but you must communicate within our terms for now. From our point of view, Lucas is a person of appreciable character, talking with us in the language of the 16th century. I am engaged in studying that language and taking his speeches as valuable evidence of its forms. I would hope that if we can get the authenticity of this strange experience in which we are engaged validated by our own contemporaries, then these scripts from the 16th century will be accepted as providing important evidence of the state of the language of demotic speech, which is otherwise a great gap in modern linguistic studies. Can you confirm that his language is genuine, and can you perhaps help to establish the credibility of that fact? For the rest, good luck with your own researches, Peter. Ken disagreed that 2109 was either superior or in the future, but he agreed to send the message as Peter had typed it. For all we know, Peter said, they might be angels. Angels? Ken laughed. Messengers from God who don't even have O-level English? 2109 seemed to appreciate Peter's communication style, however. They offered a surprisingly forthright answer. Peter, you are, without any exaggeration, a clever and cautious man, who have thought with great care of your words. 
The use of the word dimensional has more relevance than you are given to believe. But we can see you care not for beating around the bush. You want to know only facts. We can understand your fear that communications with us may jeopardize your authenticity of this phenomenon, and consequently the language of Thomas Howarden, but you still must have some facts. Understandable. Yes, is a straight enough answer. We have mislaid what evidence we could, but you will come across more than you have already. Some facts accepted in our time. 1. If a person is to physically travel in time, then they must take the living place of a person at the point of destination, and vice versa. Imagine a set of scales, balanced perfectly, with e.g. pebbles. To remove a pebble from one dish to the other and keep this perfect balance, you must instantaneously remove a pebble from the other and replace them in reverse order. You may move a couple of pebbles already in the dish, but the vital balance is still kept. If someone is brought in from another dimension, then again the same procedure applies. 2. Matter will not, as we know, ever travel in time. This is not a contradiction to the above info. 3. We are not in control of this experiment. 4. Thomas is a person living in the 16th century, but, unknown to him, he is not quite what he seems to be. Ken, is there a possibility that you may persuade Thomas to call up this chap one tonight, as it is imperative that we speak to him immediately? 2109. Matter can't travel through time. But what about things that are immaterial, yet still real? Can information travel through time? We already know it can, in a sense. We can leave records of information that can travel forward in time. What about mind? Mind is poorly understood, but it is nevertheless real. Can mind travel through time the same way information can? Maybe even like a tachyon can? In any direction? When Ken read the reply to David Welch, the researcher was intrigued. SPR agreed to ask the entity 2109 a set of questions, but under circumstances that would completely eliminate all possibility of a hoax. They arrived at Meadow Cottage and set up their experiment. Everyone would stay in the living room while the computer was examined for existing messages and cleared. Then Welch would set up a screen that prevented anyone from seeing his questions from the kitchen window or the skylight. He would enter his questions into the computer, wait 45 minutes, and then delete them. Ken, Deb, and Peter would have no knowledge of the questions he'd asked. Only the person or being who was communicating via the micro would know what Welch had asked. Before this experiment could be carried out, another tragedy occurred. The puppy Lucas fell ill with parvovirus, a deadly disease. Deb did her best to nurse him, but he passed away, and sorrow was thick in the cottage. Lucas knew of the dog's passing and of Deb's sadness. He sent a letter of condolence by paper and pen. In that letter he expounded on the dog himself who had been named Lucas, and he said, I shall tell you of the Lucas from whom I took my name. He was the greatest man that ever lived. He was a man of true dignity, worthy to his fellows. In Bristol when I was but a child, he took me into his house and offered to let me stay forever. He told me things I would never reveal, not at any price. Of his quality, for he always spoke wisely, I could not place my father his equal. He was the nearest man to God. He was sent to prison for taking a book for me to read. He often did this, but always returned them, and as he told the court, to do this is not a crime. 
He died in prison, and I took his name in the hope that I could be as much like him as possible. But in some ways your dog was very like him, for he also stood and fought. And because of your small dog, I am ashamed that I use the name of Lucas, for I am not worthy of it. Thomas. Thomas's old master, Lucas, was a new layer to the mystery. Peter confirmed that Bristol had, at the time, been a hotbed of alchemy. Was Thomas the apprentice of some alchemical master? Perhaps one who discovered something unusual about the nature of reality? What secret was this present Lucas hiding from the world? 2109 had said that Lucas wasn't what he seemed to be. Perhaps the knowledge he'd gained from his old master had especially suited him to 2109's experiment. SPR conducted its experiment as planned, and while they all waited for the results, Ken asked Thomas Lucas for more information about one. My good fellow Ken, you asked of one from 2109. He said many nonsensical things to me and was boasting of his power somewhat, but before I could offer him a seat, he had already gone. He said that he will write my book and we are not to speak to 2109, for they are taunters that only want to force their thoughts on us. But I can't square with talk from a man that looks green and is a time voyager. What do you think? I am confused. And ask you why you speak with these persons because there is no need. Please speak only with your fellow poor wretched Thomas and not with these gabbering 2109, in case you may be taken to be insane. Finally, the response came from 2109. David, John. David, you interfere with communication. Next time you decide to perform your little experiment, you must be clear from here. We suggest you try someone else to sit with Debbie. Yes, we are what you would call a tachyon universe, but your understanding is incorrect. We ask nothing more of you than to carry on as you would prefer. We will have John present if given the choice, or you may bring another as mentioned. No, it is no concern to us that this is not proved. We will give you a plotting of a star next time. We move at a speed so that we cover every point in your time and universe. We have no form. We feed of a neat energy that you will not have heard of. 2109 Ken read the reply to Welch over the phone. Welch said that 2109 hadn't given exact answers to his questions, but had addressed each one and, in the order he'd written them, even if the answers were vague. Ken was triumphant. They'd done it. They'd proven to SPR that this was no hoax. Whatever was going on, however difficult it was to explain, it was a real phenomenon. Ken, Deb, and Peter gathered at the computer again, reading over 2109's answer. The entity seemed to be suggesting that it was coming to this universe from another dimension, or perhaps their dimension was passing through ours? They could see and follow every path in history. They weren't in the future exactly. That word had lost all meaning in the face of such a mystery. 2109 was some sort of alien intelligence. As uncomfortable as everyone was with that concept, it seemed to be the truth. But now they noticed that the message had been altered slightly. There was a new addendum at the bottom of the page. 2109. 213,978,8J colon irrecoverable. State, reason for your pretext. State, what prerequisite you intend. State, logical explanation for intrusive behavior upon 1985. This is not your concern. Request, com.link, 
62J colon plot dot chan dot bracket 452.95 bracket request answer immediately fed awaiting reasons for delay and that's where I leave you for this week next week we'll pick up with a conclusion of the mystery of the Dodleston messages That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll be back next Wednesday with a conclusion of the first ever series on Future Saint of a New Era. If you've been enjoying the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcatcher, and if you listen on the Apple Podcasts app, why not take a minute to rate and review, since that sends my tachyons shooting in all directions through the algorithm, thus helping me find more curious weirdos like you. I've also seen my subscriber numbers grow significantly since the last episode. Welcome to all you new listeners, and thank you so much to my older listeners for helping spread the word. Let's make the tribe of Future Saints grow even more. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you'd tell a friend about the podcast. If you'd like to explore the mystery of the Dodleston messages for yourself, check out Ken Webster's book, The Vertical Plane, at your favorite bookseller. Music included Controlled Chaos, Dark Walk, Echoes of Time, Land of Phantoms, and Spatial Winds by Kevin MacLeod. Outro music is Run in the Mardi Gras by Boko, used with permission of Big Crown Records. For more information about this podcast, including socials and ways to contact me, visit futuresaintpod.com. I'm Libby Grant, and until next time... Do good magic and make good worlds.